Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Birasli. The 2020 Summer Olympics are finally about to begin in Tokyo, and locals aren't happy about it. These people marching through the streets of Tokyo are not celebrating the coming Olympics, but demanding it be stopped. The games were delayed for a year because of COVID-19. But even now, there are serious questions about their safety. Well, it's official. No fans at the Tokyo Olympics. Organizers made that announcement today, essentially turning the games into a TV-only event. No claps, no cheers, no fans at all. Well, Japan is taking a tougher approach to help curb the spread of COVID-19 just two weeks before the Olympics is set to begin. 83% of Japanese oppose holding the games, but their leaders are determined to make the Olympics happen anyway. Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga and the International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach reaffirmed their determination to push through with the Olympic Games. We uh, continue to uh, be committed to our principle of uh, organizing uh, safe uh, Olympic and Paralympic Games. Conflicts between host cities and their citizens over the Olympics are nothing new. Even when the world isn't gripped by a pandemic, the Games can create serious problems for local populations. At a cost of 13 billion euros, the Athens Olympics played their part in the saga of Greece's public debt. The list is legendary. Empty and rotting Olympic facilities now span the globe. One estimate puts the number of displaced people due to the Olympics at 2 million over the past 20 years. So why do cities seek to host the Olympics? Why does the world continue to watch? Is it time to rethink the Games? Jules. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? Here to help us answer these questions is Jules Boykoff. So nice to meet you. Jules is an associate professor of political science at Pacific University in Oregon and a former member of the U.S. Olympic soccer team. He joins us from Portland, Oregon. Jules, the Olympics have serious flaws and we'll discuss many of them today. But the modern games have been around since the 1890s, and they continue to rank among the world's most watched television broadcasts. So I want to start by looking at their appeal. Why do people love the Olympics? I think there's one main reason why people love the Olympics, and that is the athletes. The athletes have amazing stories. They bring incredible triumphs to the Olympics. There's sad stories as well that really pull on our emotional heartstrings. That's really it. I mean, in some ways, it's just that simple. I think there's also a little bit of the possibility that it just seems so audaciously impractical to host such a monstrously huge event that just to pull it off is somewhat of a triumph in itself. And so I think that might be a little bit of its charm as well. There's just so many events, so many athletes, so many stories that make it happen. And hosting the Olympics has also held significant appeal. Paris, Milan, Beijing, and L.A. are all set to host future games. What do cities hope to gain from hosting the Olympics? Well, I think first it's really helpful to figure out who is bidding on these Olympics from these cities. And in all my days studying the political history of the Olympics, I've never seen a grassroots bid for the Games where working people come together and say, you know what, we want to have the Olympics in our city. I've just never seen it. 
the people that tend to push forward these bids, whether it's in Calgary, whether it's in Los Angeles, whether it's in Sydney, Australia, or Tokyo, they tend to be the well-connected political and economic elites from those cities. And I think that explains the past in terms of why we've seen these bids in the past. But it also explains why we continue to see bids, even though the Olympics have gotten such a bad rap in recent years for a whole host of reasons I'm sure we'll talk about today. So I was just start there, that well-connected political and economic elites stand to benefit from the Olympic Games. After all, there's tons of money sloshing through the Olympic system. It just so happens that that money tends to slosh upwards into already pretty stuffed pockets, to be honest, of people who have these well-connected uh, positions. And so I think that's a good place to start typically when we're trying to figure out the bidding situation and why people go for the games. While some might get rich off the Olympics, host cities are more likely to get into debt. That's because the games usually cost a lot more than anticipated. Hosting the Olympic Games has become a kind of Olympian feat in itself. Recent games have been pricey for taxpayers. We've had too many Olympic facilities which turn out to be used for 17 days and are paid for over 17 years. When we talk about the legacy for the Olympics, what we're really looking at more than anything else is a legacy of debt. Over the last 50 years, every Olympics has overshot its budget by an average of 179 percent. Jules says that part of the problem is that host countries often lowball cost estimates in order to secure a bid. He calls this etch-a-sketch economics. The basic idea is that with every single Olympics going back to 1960, there have been cost overruns. A University of Oxford study has documented this. In other words, at the beginning of the bidding phase, all these cities that are saying we want the Olympics argue that the Olympics will only cost so much. By the time the games roll around, they inevitably cost more. That's why I call it Etch-a-Sketch economics. During the bid phase, you write one number on your Etch-a-Sketch, and then once you get the Olympics and start to get ready for it, you shake up that Etch-a-Sketch, and you then pen in a, a brand new number that's inevitably much higher. Let me give some specific examples that kind of help us understand what we're talking about. The Tokyo Olympics were originally supposed to cost $7.3 billion. Today, it looks more like $30 billion. It was already through the roof before the pandemic hit, the coronavirus pandemic, which added a few more billion on in costs. It's not just a Tokyo problem. You look at the Pyeongchang Olympics, the previous ones in 2018, they were originally supposed to cost 6.5 billion. They ended up costing 13 billion. Before that, Rio de Janeiro, 12 billion they were supposed to cost. They ended up costing 20 billion. Sochi, 2014 in Russia, they were supposed to cost 12 billion. They ended up costing $51 billion, more than all previous Winter Olympics combined. And so I think you get the picture. That's why I call it Etch-a-Sketch Economics, because you just come up with a brand new number once you have the Olympics in your pocket. And so all this Olympic spending might not actually be so bad if it brought long-term returns. So for example, the games are billed as an opportunity to build urgently needed infrastructure like affordable housing and public transportation. But in reality, they are more likely to deliver white elephants. What's going wrong? Well, let's start with the positives at first. There have been a couple examples in the recent political history of the Olympics where much needed transportation was built. 
Look, for example, at the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, an absolute debacle when it comes to costs, an absolute debacle when it comes to those white elephant stadiums that you were talking about, Elmira. But they did manage to get a decent subway system out of it. Now, a lot of people in Athens who might be listening might be saying, yeah, we could have built that subway system without the Olympics altogether and saved billions of dollars. You're absolutely correct, people of Athens. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there are a few examples that you could point to. Some of them aren't so great that people point to. Let me give you an example where I used to live in Rio. They also built a subway line, but they didn't really need a subway line going off into the sort of richer districts to the west side of Rio de Janeiro. What they really needed was a subway line or at least better buses going to the north of the city where a lot of the day workers would come when they came in to work in Rio. And so the, the point is the priorities were based on the Olympics out in the western zone of Rio. That's where all the venues were going to be. And so they wanted to have a subway that could take people from Copacabana Ipanema, out to the western part of the city. That doesn't really serve the people of the city all that well, the actually working people of the city. And so I think that is a place to start, looking at transportation. The problem with the Olympics is that the positive examples are so few and far between. And really, most of the examples that we point to are either made for the rich, like that subway in Rio de Janeiro, or just like never happen. Like it's a promise that is said during the bid phase and that just never comes to fruition. Let me give you one example again from Rio that I think really hammers home the story. If you look at the bid documents and the early promises around the Rio 2016 Olympics, organizers promised that some 80% of the water that was flowing into Guanabara Bay, where they were going to host a couple of Olympic games and where a lot of people recreate from around the city, 80% of the water was going to be treated. Unfortunately, by the time the games rolled around, only like 25% of that water was being treated. Every single day, 169 gallons uh, of uh, 169 million gallons, I should say, of uh, untreated sewage continued to flow into Guanabara Bay. So it's really about false promises in so many instances, and that can be extraordinarily painful for the everyday working people of a city. One kind of Olympic investment that does have a lasting impact in host countries is security-related. But the effects aren't generally positive. London is in lockdown, and that means some residents will have to sleep under these. Surface-to-air missiles designed to stop a 9-11-style attack. The message to terrorists, don't even think about attacking the London Games. The British military will deploy more troops to protect the Olympics, 13,000, than it deploys to Afghanistan. It's the largest military presence in London since World War II. This isn't entirely unjustified. After all, the games have been targeted by terrorists before. This morning, the FBI confirms a bomb was the cause of the early morning explosion at Centennial Park. The explosion happened about 1.30 near a stage where thousands of people were watching a concert. It was aimed at the innocent people who were participating in the Olympic Games and in the spirit of the Olympics. We haven't seen violence at an Olympics since 1972 when 11 athletes lost their lives. This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. And terrorist groups still look at the Olympics as a potential opportunity. Some call him Russia's bin Laden. A U.S. intelligence official calls him the Emir. He's Doku Umarov, a dangerous, charismatic Chechen Islamist militant leader. Last July, Umarov threatened to destroy the Sochi games, calling them, quote, satanic dances on the bones of our ancestors. But Jules says the hosts often go much too far when it comes to security, implementing changes that last long after the athletes have gone home. 
local security forces and the politicians that they're working with use the Olympics like their own private money pump, getting all the special laws, equipment, and funds that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. And because of the fact that the Olympics have gotten so huge, they suffer from what some scholars call gigantism, it has necessitated bringing in more security forces. This is especially the case, of course, after the September 11th terrorist attacks. And the history of the Olympics does have some examples of terrorist attacks, 1972 in Munich, 1996 in Atlanta. And even so recent as 2014, the Chechen rebel Doku Umarov said that uh, the Sochi Olympics in Russia were a legitimate terrorist target. So what do security officials do? They ramp up the weaponry. In London, they actually had surface-to-air missiles ratcheted onto the roofs of apartment buildings there. This has just become part of the normal course of hosting the Olympics. Now, once the games are over, it's not like all of a sudden the people that organize the Olympics say, all right, box them up, boys. Take all that equipment back to the sender. The Olympics are over. We don't need it anymore. No. What happens is it becomes part of everyday policing moving forward. And there's just example after example of this where the city got all this new equipment and then keep it as part of everyday policing. They create a new normal. One final example is Los Angeles, who hosted the 1984 Olympics, which a lot of people point to as this major triumph. But they got a lot of equipment that they then turned around, the police did, and used in the racialized drug war against the local population. This big battering ram, for example. And when you look back at those Olympics you, and you look at stories that were written about the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, you see that people were just astounded at the level of securitization around the games. One Japanese journalist who was covering the Olympics then said that for him, the sound of the Olympics, the official sound was the whir of helicopter blades overhead. And so this has just become a big part of the games. So this connects to a broader argument that you've made about democracy and the Olympics don't really mix. And you say that staging the games not only fails to strengthen democracy and human rights, it actually makes democratic states more autocratic. Why do you think that? I'm glad you raised that point, especially with Beijing on the horizon. Beijing is hosting the 2022 Winter Olympics only some six months after the Tokyo Games conclude. And so a lot of people will see it in the news left and right. We'll be talking about how can Beijing possibly host the Olympic Games when there are egregious and open human rights violations happening against the Muslim ethnic Uyghur population, Tibetans, what's happening in Hong Kong. And yet there's these wonderful principles of around human rights in the Olympic Charter. This doesn't seem to mesh. And those people are exactly right. But I think when we also waggle a finger at, at Beijing, we do well to look at how the Olympics plays out in putative democracies, like in Los Angeles, for example, where it actually makes democracies much more authoritarian, like you say. That's one of the major legacies of the games, in part because of the securitization that we were talking about and the ramping up of weapons, uh, but also just the fact that the process for getting the Olympics are not at all democratic. In fact, when we see outbursts of democracy happening in the context of the Olympics, it's very oftentimes in the context of voters getting a chance to weigh in on whether they want to host the Olympics, and they say thanks but no thanks for some of the reasons that we've been talking about. If we look forward to some of the places that folks consider to be democracies that are hosting the Olympics soon, so Paris, for example, the 2024 Summer Olympics, Los Angeles, the 2028 Summer Olympics, uh, Brisbane, looks like they're going to get rubber stamped to host the 2032 Olympics. 
all of those places that are hosting summer games have not been given the chance to have their everyday residents weigh in on whether they want to host the Olympics. And for me, this just sort of seems like a no-brainer. If we listen to the members of the International Olympic Committee talking about how wonderful the Olympics are and how what a big deal it is for a city, it seems to me that if it's a big deal for a city, then the people that live in that city should have a chance to weigh in, especially because so much of their taxpayer money goes into these Olympics each and every time. As Jules points out, host city residents often pay a high price for the Olympics. Making matters worse, the games tend to exacerbate many of the problems already plaguing cities, such as a lack of affordable housing, police militarization, and inequality. These are all problems that have fueled intensifying popular protests in recent years. Tonight, with a mounting national chorus decrying police brutality against black Americans, there's a new call for deep structural reform of policing across the country. When do you want it? It's the new rallying cry for advocates of law enforcement reform in the U.S. Defund the police. If we don't get it, shut it down. If you don't get it, shut it down. It shouldn't be too surprising then that the Olympics have often been a target of protest. In fact, there is so much to protest about the games that they can end up acting as bridges between existing social justice movements. This is basically the way it typically happens, is that a city is granted the Olympics and already existing groups in that city start to look at the Olympics like, wow, it's going to affect our city in a major way. We better stand up and fight against this. So like you have anti-gentrification groups, you've got housing rights groups, you've got groups that are concerned about uh, the militarization of policing, Uh, you've got groups that are concerned about poverty in the city all of them already working on their various causes. Because the Olympics are such a massive juggernaut, an economic juggernaut, a social juggernaut, a political juggernaut, they tend to roll over the toes of all these activist groups who then come together in the Olympic city to fight against the Olympic machine. That's how it happened, at least in the past. What's changing now, and I think Tokyo is an interesting place to maybe think through this a little bit, is that there's become sort of a transnational network of anti-Olympics groups around the world. And the activists in Tokyo are very much at the center of it. There are two main organizing groups, although there are also others, but two main organizing groups in Tokyo, Hangarin Nukai is one of them, and Okotoa Link is the other. And they've come together to fight against the Olympics there. And they hosted the first ever transnational anti-Olympics summit in July 2019. I happen to have the good fortune of attending that. And prior to this, essentially fighting against the Olympics was an activist game of whack-a-mole. It would pop up in the city and then activists would fight against the Olympics and then the Olympics would go on and everybody go back to their normal organizing. And what these groups in Tokyo, Los Angeles, Paris, and elsewhere are trying to do is to extend that transnational spirit. And that's kind of the why we're at a really interesting moment right now when it comes to fighting back against the Olympic machine. And so do you feel like those activists who are trying to drive social change, or do, you, do you feel like they're gaining traction based on the anti-Olympic protests that are popping up? So... Think about it this way. The Olympics often tell us that when you host the games in your city, you're going to have all these wonderful legacies, whether it's clean water in Guanabara Bay or all manner of other things that they promise. The one thing that they don't promise that actually might be a legacy is intensified activism in the Olympic city. 
and the coming together of groups that otherwise might have never teamed up on the same issues that get to know each other during the Olympic moment and continue to fight together after that moment. A good example of that is Vancouver, Canada, that hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics, where you had all these activists come from all these different sectors of the city to fight against the Olympic Games then. You had lawyers from the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association. You had uh, anarchists doing street protests and minor vandalism in the city. Uh, you had professors. The professoriate was out in full force there. You had anti-gentrification activists. And when I went back up to the Olympics afterwards and interviewed a lot of these folks who were involved in the fight back against the 2010 Winter Olympics, they said that they were still fighting alongside those activists. So the legacy, if unintended, of the Olympics was to strengthen the activist community in the city to fight against uh, the oppressive forces that continue after the games are gone. Olympic protests don't just happen around the events. Sometimes they happen on the medal podium. That was the case in 1968. The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme in the sprint races thanks to men like Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Yesterday, they came in first and third in the 200-meter dash and then stood on the victory platform with bowed heads wearing black socks and gloves in a racial protest. This tradition of athlete protest continues to this day. One athlete is now getting attention, mostly from conservatives, not for her performance on the field, but for her protest on the podium. Hammer thrower Gwen Berry turned away from the American flag and held up her activist athlete t-shirt while receiving her bronze medal. This isn't the first time Berry has exercised her right to peaceful protest. After winning gold in the hammer throw at the 2019 Pan Am Games, Berry raised her fist for which she was sanctioned. The International Olympic Committee has long argued that athlete protests have no place at the games. Any uh, a kind of uh, boycott for uh, whatever uh, reason is uh, against uh, this mission of uh, the Olympic uh, Games. Jules, activists aren't the only ones using the games to stage protests. Increasingly, we're seeing athletes do it too. But the IOC has strict rules in place to limit these actions. How powerful are athletes' protests, and what explains the IOC's hardline stance against them? Well, first, the hardline stance is written into the Olympic Charter. And it says very clearly in what has now become the sort of notorious Rule 50 that athletes cannot engage in political demonstrations in the Olympics, around the Olympics, or around the venues. And this was a direct response to something that happened in 1968 at the Mexico City Olympics, where two U.S. sprinters, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, thrust their black glove fists into the Mexico City sky to protest for human rights and for black freedom. So the International Olympic Committee decides we can't have any more of this kind of stuff, and they make this rule banning the dissent at the Olympic Games. And yet still there's athlete activism. There's been little outbursts here and there along the way. But right now we are living in what I think is fair to call the athlete empowerment era, where you have all these athletes who are very tapped into our extended Black Lives Matter moment, who are very tapped into our extended Me Too moment, who understand the fights against these pipelines largely led by indigenous peoples in North America and want to have a say in these matters. And so I think this summer's Olympics are shaping up to be one where we might see athlete activism. And because 
the International Olympic Committee can see this also in their future. They recently issued in the beginning of July some new guidelines that say, oh, well, okay, athletes, we, they don't acknowledge it, but they can feel the heat. And they're like, okay, you can basically now talk to members of the media about your politics. Well, they've always could do that. Or you can talk in these mix zones about politics. Well, they could always do that. The one thing that they did change was that now before your event on the field of play, you can engage in some sort of uh, political action if you like. So the IOC is reacting. They're loosening the rules a little bit. And I think we might see athlete activism at this summer's Tokyo Games. Stifling athlete activism isn't the only problem, though, with the IOC. You've actually said that the organization oversees the least accountable sports infrastructure in the world. What did you mean by that? I mean, what happens when they break their promises, which happens every time there's an Olympics? Nothing, because there's nobody enforcing the rules. They just move on. They hop in their fancy jets and they literally fly off to the next place that they're going to have their next Olympics. They never come back in many cases uh, where they were before. When it comes to athlete rights, who's looking over this? You'd think it'd be the United Nations might have a say. They have a longtime partnership with the Olympics, but they don't have any uh, sort of leverage over them. After all, if you look at the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 19 states very clearly that you cannot have clampdowns on people's ability to engage in freedom of expression. That rule we were just discussing in the Olympic Charter, Rule 50, does exactly that. It's a, it's a violation of human rights, according to the United Nations. So I guess I'm just saying there's very little leverage out there to create accountability on the Olympic machine. One promising possible source of leverage moving forward is organized athletes. We're seeing more and more athletes coming together, creating these bodies that collectively push back against the power of the Olympic Games. There's a really exciting group called Global Athlete, for example, that organizes Olympians. Um, there are groups of track athletes that are organizing. There are a group of swimmers that are organizing right now. If the athlete workers, and I think we should look at Olympians as athlete workers, if the athlete workers of the Games decided to come together in solidarity, they could actually impose some measure of accountability on the people who run the Olympics at the International Olympic Committee. But until that happens, it's very difficult to get a foothold against them. But even if athletes did hold the IOC to account, it wouldn't fix all the Olympics' most serious flaws, from overspending to human rights abuses. At the very least, that would require reimagining the Games. Jules, it's clear the Olympics are deeply problematic. Is it time to cancel them? Well, I definitely think it's time to cancel these Tokyo Olympics um, because of the fact that they are a major gamble with global public health and it's only being done so that the International Olympic Committee can claim its billions in broadcast revenues and corporate fees that it gets. I think there are people that are perfectly willing to go further, and, and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of their arguments just because of the fact that the Olympics basically are known now for overspending, for the militarization of public space, for gentrification and forced eviction and greenwashing. And then it's not just sort of a bug that happens every once in a while, like in Tokyo or Rio, but it's actually a feature of the Olympic Games, no matter where they take place. These are Olympic problems, not necessarily Tokyo problems. And until the International Olympic Committee decides that it actually wants to address these in a meaningful way, instead of just saying, oh, it's not our fault, it's the local organizer's fault, 
uh, then yes, I think that the Olympics probably should be canceled until athletes get a bigger piece of the money pie. Uh, and let me be clear, they do not get a fair piece of the money pie. Let me break it down just for a second, Elmira, if I may. If you compare Olympians and their revenues to other major sports like the National Basketball Association, the National Football League, those other leagues, the athletes claim about 45 to 60% of the revenues that those leagues take in, 45 to 60%. Olympians, they get 4.1% of the revenues from the Olympic Games, 4.1 compared to 45 to 60%. And so until athletes get a bigger piece of the money pie, maybe the games should go on hiatus until we think of a more equitable way. Because as we started with the beginning of this conversation, it's the Olympians that make the Olympics. And if they're not getting their fair share out of the deal, then you have to sort of wonder about the bigger enterprise. Jules, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Elmira. That was Jules Boykoff, an associate professor of political science at Pacific University in Oregon and the author of Nolympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please write and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also find us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.